I'm Crystal. And I'm Steve. And we are the co-hosts this week of The Dirt on the Past. Now, you might have noticed that Nancy is not with us today. Um, Nancy had an emergency, so she wasn't able to be part of this podcast. So we're pulling in Steve Durbin. And you've heard us mention Steve before. He is the one who records every single one of these podcasts. And he is um, the third member of this team, but you never hear from Steve. So we're excited that Steve is going to get to talk this time. Well, I'm a poor substitute for Nancy, but I'm happy to be on the other side of the mic. (laughs) Well, we're so glad you are, Steve. Thanks so much. So this week, we are sitting at the Extreme History offices speaking in person with Mark Johnson, historian and author of The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky, A History of the Chinese Experience in Montana. And we are so excited to talk with Mark today. But first, just wanted to ask Steve, how was your week? Well, this was actually a big week for KGVM, our community radio station, where this podcast airs. This was our fourth birthday celebration. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, we've been four years on the air now. We've actually been around for longer than that, but uh, four years broadcasting and you know, developing our platform for community radio here in Bozeman and Gallatin Valley. So wow. Well, congratulations, Steve. so far. Yeah, and you were one of the first people who had this idea of KGVM, the community radio station, and have been with it since the very get-go, right? Well, I was certainly not one of the first. But okay. I, I signed on at some point, and uh, I was very much devoted to this particular cause, and uh, it's great to see it come to some level of fruition, and we yes. hope to keep going higher and farther. Yes. Well, wonderful. We're so glad that it's in existence. And so thanks to you and all the folks who have made that happen. How about you, Crystal? Well, you know, it's been um, a very busy week. We're gearing up for walking tour season. So we are training new tour guides. We are walking. I've been walking out in downtown Bozeman at least once a day (laughs) this last week, um, trying to get everybody ready for our walking tour season that starts Memorial Day weekend. And so we have some of our old tours, but we have... um, at least one or two new tours as well that are going to debut this year. So we're getting those um, up and going, which is pretty, pretty exciting. It's a great time of year. And uh, so if you're in the Bozeman area, make sure and come on a walking tour this summer. We have some, some of our guides that have been with us for a long time, but we have some new guides that we've trained up as well. So it's, it's very exciting, but we should probably Steve get back to our guest who is waiting patiently. So welcome, Mark. We're so glad to have you here today to talk about your new book. It's, it's great to be back. I always love partnering with the dirt on the past and the extreme history project. And I can attest to the quality of the walking tours that you do having done several of them in the past. So anybody listening, come on down to Bozeman and do some of those walking tours. Yeah, and you've really helped us with some of the content on our walking tours, especially with the information on Bozeman's Chinese community. Over the years, you've really um, helped us with some of that uh, information, some of that data that you've gleaned, you've passed on to us, and it's really helped us better understand the historic Chinese community here in Bozeman. So thank you so much, Mark, for doing that. And I just want to say it's so exciting to see your book because you've been writing it for a, a little while now and and um you know it, and you've been taught we've been you know you've been talking about it but we've you've shared chapters with us in the past and so it's just so amazing to like have this physical thing i'm sure for you it's just extraordinary to have this physical thing in front of you it's very exciting you know it's i've been working on parts of this project for 12 years. Early on, I didn't realize there was a book in it. But the more that I dove into the archives, every time I dove into the archives, a new piece would emerge. And sometimes those pieces took several years to make sense of and to contextualize, to really truly understand. And at, at a certain point, maybe five years ago, I thought, you know, there might be enough here for a book. So when I spoke the first time for the Extreme History Project, that was August of 2017. Yeah. And that was just on a smaller piece, a fascinating piece, yeah. I think. But at that point, I had no aspirations of it becoming a book. So it's nice to have seen this project grow and just take the time that it needed to tell the story well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's um, pass it back to Steve, and he'll introduce you formally. Well, I want to start off, yes, by telling our listeners uh, a little bit about Mark Johnson. He's an associate professor at the Institute of Educational Initiatives at the University of Notre Dame. In this role, Mark works with the Alliance for Catholic Education, partnering with middle and high school social studies teachers who serve in under-resourced Catholic schools across the country. In his history interests, 
Mark focuses on the Chinese experience in his home state of Montana. Previously working in Shanghai, China, Mark brought students with the necessary language abilities to Montana to translate several collections of documents from the state's historic Chinese communities to work to tell the history of Montana's Chinese in their own words. So Mark, um, you know, thinking back when you started this project and, and really started your interest in history, what brought you to history? Were you interested in history as a fourth grader in elementary school, or did you come to history later? So first question, what, when did you come to history? Why did you come to history? And then why did you come to the history of the Chinese communities in Montana? Uh, you ask about fourth grade. I can remember the books that I was reading in fourth grade, and they're all history. I loved uh, history when I was a kid. I loved reading about history. You know, for, I think for a lot of young boys, it starts with kind of a military bent of history. So all the air wars of World War II were fascinating to me, and then the Vietnam War and things like that. But I also remember going on road trips, and my family, my mom and dad are both from Wyoming, but have lived in Montana since the early 70s. And we'd drive a lot throughout the West, and they would, my dad would always be telling me stories about this battle that happened here, or this treaty that was signed here, and I found it fascinating. It was definitely my favorite subject growing up. Um, I had some great history teachers throughout, and great teachers, but I, I particularly remember fondly my history classes. When I was leaving high school, my guidance counselor said, what do you want to do, Mark? And I said, well, I want to be a history teacher and a football coach. Mm. And my dad's a football coach, you know. Oh, yeah. And my guidance counselor said, they're a dime a dozen, you'll never get a job. And so I thought, well, okay, I got to get a job, right? Yeah. And so I wasn't bad at math, so I went in to be a math major at Carroll College in Helena, Montana. And uh, eventually realized I was more interested in Pythagoras's history than his theorem. Yeah, and right. exactly. Just needed needed to switch and indulge my passion. And I wasn't I wasn't uh, good enough at math to really take that track. So I, I realized you know maybe I wouldn't get a job, but I needed to follow my passion. So I switched my major at Carroll College and had great professors there: Dr. Robert Swartout, yes, Father yeah. William Graytack, Father Williams, uh, sorry, Father Jeremiah Sullivan. Loved, loved, loved my training at Carroll College and, mm. and just fell in love with world history and European history and Asian history specifically through Dr. Swartout's influence. He also had worked specifically on the Asian history of Montana. Mm. And so I came to know a little bit about the Chinese experience in Montana through his work in the 1980s. And I studied with him in the 90s. And that planted a seed that I didn't know would eventually grow with my experience of, of living and teaching in China for eight years. So then I was able to marry my home state of Montana with my international experience and bring the two together in what I hope are exciting ways for the reader. Yeah, definitely. That's great. That's great. Well, we're excited to talk with you today about your newly published book, The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky, A History of the Chinese Experience in Montana. This book explores the Chinese experience in Montana through the lens of a large collection of primary documents left by Chinese pioneers translated into English and discussed in this book for the first time. This collection, spanning the 1880s through the 1950s, provides insight into the pressures the Chinese community faced, from family members back in China and from non-Chinese Montanans, as economic and cultural disturbances complicated acceptance of Chinese residents in the state. You reveal, through the actual voices of the Chinese, the personal agency Chinese Montanans displayed in the history of the American West and China. Can you tell us more about the documents that you used? What were they? Where did they come from? Who translated them? And how did you use them in your research? Thank you for the question. You know, it's a long process. And I, I want to preface before I talk about the documents that, that I and my team found and translated, I want to just preface it with a quote from somebody you've featured on The Dirt on the Past previously, Dr. Christopher Merritt, right? Oh, now yeah. he's down in Utah as yeah. a state historic preservation officer. Right. He did amazing work on the archaeology of Montana's Chinese communities. And in that work, he noted this absence. And so I read from his, his assessment of a problem with telling Chinese Montanans history. Lack of primary source data hinders the historical study of Chinese in Montana and realistically most other regions of the diaspora. Due to their generally low social status, a significant language barrier, and inherent racial stereotyping, Chinese populations do not fill the pages of historical documents. Furthermore, few primary historical accounts from their perspective in Montana or China have been identified to date. The most unfortunate part of the Chinese story is that by the 21st century, the majority known about this population is from anecdotal stories in Montana's press and by biased primary resources. He's not wrong about that. 
And so most of what has been told about the Chinese history has been through newspaper accounts or non-Chinese sources that doesn't capture their, their motivations, their perspective, their hopes and dreams and struggles. What we found at the Montana Historical Society allows us to do that. So in 2010, I came across, with the help of the great Montana Historical Society researchers, a box of documents all in Chinese, letters from southern China to a gentleman working in Butte, probably working as a laundry worker in Butte, these span from the 1880s to the 1920s. They were all in Chinese, and I asked the researcher, I said, have you ever you know, had these translated? And he said, no, we, we don't know that many people who read Chinese. This was in 2010. Turns out they had attempted a brief translation in the late 80s. They got a linguist from the University of Montana to assess them, and he had Chinese language abilities. His assessment was they deal with family matters and they're of no historical import. When we translated them through a long process with my team that I'll explain in a bit, he was right about the first part. They did deal with family matters. I think he's wrong about the second part. I do think they are historically important. So working with those documents, again, written in the 1880s to 1920s, in a calligraphy that's hard for modern readers to read and in a style of Chinese writing that's hard for many mainland Chinese people to read, we had a difficult time of translating these. Okay, So... The, the language was that the written form of Chinese was simplified in the 1950s after the communist victory in the Civil War, and it was simplified to try and spread literacy. That worked, but it also made it so that modern readers of the simplified script have a difficult time reading the traditional script from this time period that we're looking at. When I realized that, I realized I needed a research team, a translation team that had certain abilities. So I needed people of a certain generation. So my students who were working in Shanghai, I needed their grandmas or grandpas who had been trained in the old ways. And or I needed people who were still learning traditional script. And that happens in Taiwan and in Hong Kong. So with that wonderful international community at Shanghai's school that I was at, we had some Taiwanese families, some Hong Kong families. And I enlisted their support, got their sons and daughters on this, got moms and dads on it, grandmas and grandpas on it. So it was truly a transnational, intergenerational translation project that wow. gave us this insight into these, this first box of letters. In 2012, I wrote a number of grants, got a research team to come to Helena, Montana, where the documents are housed, where, while the translation team worked back in Shanghai to translate. So the research team in Helena would digitize the documents, the translation team would translate, we'd go back and forth virtually, and we would try to research what um, leads emerged from those translated documents. Turns out they were to a gentleman we called De Chuan. That probably wasn't how he referred to himself based on some ins and outs of the Chinese language. Working as a laundryman in Butte, and the, the letters reveal deep, deep cultural and family pressures on this gentleman in Butte. The letters are from southern China to him in Butte. It's assumed that he was writing back to them. We know that because we see reference to letters received and money received, but we don't have any existing letters from him because by definition they're in southern China. Mm -hmm. But the letters from southern China talk about how hard life was. They implore him to send more money. They implore him to help them buy a house, get property. Uh, They implore him with family emergencies that only his money earned in Montana can help them solve. And so it's constant pleading of send more money, send more money, send more money, come home and get married, send more money, send more money, come (laughs) home and get married. Uh, And the marriage pressure was real. It's a cultural imperative for Chinese sons and daughters to produce the next line of descendants who can then honor their ancestors in a culturally important way. So this gentleman was under immense pressures from family back home, let alone the cultural pressures of being in a somewhat hostile environment here in Montana. Was he making enough money in a laundry in Butte to send that much money home? I, 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 maybe you can speak to that a little his bit. His cousins thought so. His brothers yeah. thought so. Yeah. His mom thought so. <laughs> they write that he had very, very good money because he had such a stable job and his hands are covered in gold. The records in the Montana Historical Society archives also show that he was going into deep debt Mm. here to send every penny he could back home. And it was never enough. Over that span of 40 years, the the requests for money never abate. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned in your book that they kept pressuring him with the health of his mother, that his mother was sick. They need more money. His mother wrote, I'm sick. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of a sad story too. Actually, if I could read from his mother's, mother's words, we have one letter from her. We have a number of letters from the brothers and pressuring him and, you know, informing him. 
of what he needed to do culturally, and they were relying on him. There were other brothers spread around the world. There were some working close to home in, in southern China, some working in the Philippines, some working in New York, some working elsewhere. So it was a diverse earning strategy to try and support life in southern China. But they write, and, and these are from his various brothers. Uh, one brother had, had really not fulfilled his obligations. This gentleman's name is De Shu, and he had disappeared for a long time, was not sending money home, was not fulfilling his obligations. He reappears penniless, and we do hear from him as his mother's saga plays out. So our kind mother is in very old age and towards the last few years of her life. If you've made your fortune, please come back home. That way you can repay mother the grace of her parenting, and our brothers could sit together, chat, and enjoy being together. Then we hear from his mother. Last month I was very sick, but luckily the illness is cured. However, I'm not completely recovered yet, thus money would be helpful. I only wish for your health, but please work hard. Now, how many moms with a kid working in Butte have written or thought this next line? Don't waste your time wandering around in casinos or red light districts. When you get money, regardless of the amount, return home immediately. Mm -hmm. After that, you may return to work again. That's the only correspondence we have from his mother. But then his brother, De Shu, writes to De Chuan in Butte. Mother is so old and weak now. When you have enough money to purchase a boat ticket, I hope that you can come home to visit. It is our biggest wish to see you come home. Later, he writes, her mother had been sick since last June. Sadly, she passed away the evening of September 18th last year. Sorry that I didn't let you know earlier. Please forgive me. When mother was sick, we deposited money for her treatment. It was not enough and we still owe. We received your 100 silver yuan on April 7th. I'm also thankful for the 20 silver yuan you sent to me. Since we still owe money to others, could you please send us more so that we can clear our debts? How I hate that mother has no money for burial. So he's stuck in Butte, not able to reconnect with family. I think his immigration status was precarious, and he knew that if he left to go home, mm -hmm. he might not be able to get back in, back to his earning potential, and the family would suffer if he lost his job. Right. How did he actually send money? Um, how, how did that yeah. work? It's a good question. There were three main ways to send money. One was to send it with a returning relative. That was mm -hmm. the most trustworthy, right. but also the least frequent. Now, there was quite a bit of movement back and forth between China and America. Um, but, you know, the, you can't count on that enough to meet your family's needs. Another was to hire a courier for a 5% fee, and they would take the money directly to your family. But that fee was pretty steep. The most common way was to use something called a gold mountain firm. And those were usually the Chinese mercantile stores in most, you know, uh, cities throughout the American West that had a large enough population to have a mercantile. So in Butte, it was the Wachong Thai Mercantile Store, which is right next to the Meiwa Noodle Parlor. And for a 2% fee, you could send money back. Usually, the mercantile would wait until enough investment had been accrued and then buy a commodity. So turn the, the capital into a commodity, ship it to Hong Kong, sell that commodity for a profit, oh, and then parse out wow. that money to the families oh, to, to whom it was owned. Yeah. And so then on the other side, there'd be a notice put in local newspapers of, you know, Dechuan's family has a has a correspondence or has something, and they would go and, and receive it through that Gold Mountain firm. Gold Mountain mm -hmm. is what they called America, Jin, Jin, uh, Jin Shan. Jin Shan. So the, that the Gold Mountain firm was a banking system to facilitate that those remittances. Mm -hmm. And that, that area of China that Dechuan and, and most of the Chinese who came to America came from, Taishan County, in 1930 there was a study done that said as much as 80% of the income needed for Taishan was earned overseas. It was life and death for these men to earn the money to support those families back home. And did you get a sense of how reliable communication was? Is there any reference to any lost letters or anything like that? Or could they pretty much count on things getting through? It's a good question. Those three, it was clear that Dechuan used all three of those methods. And a couple of times in the letters, we do see something of like, you mentioned money having been sent in March, but we never received it. Who should we go and talk to? Yeah. So it did break down every once in a while, but it was also clear Almost every letter that we translated referenced thanking him for the money that he had just sent. Mm -hmm. A couple of times it does appear that it broke down, though. Mm -hmm. Pretty yeah. pretty amazing and, and pretty complex transnational yeah. finance system in the 1880s and 90s, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. You talk a lot about the Gold Mountain Firm in yeah. the book. And that was fascinating. So folks will have to read more about yeah. that. But so, Mark, we've had you on the podcast before. And um, and so we want to cover different topics today than we did the last time we talked to you. But I do want you to start off, and you've kind of already started off in this in this way, but tell us a little bit about why the Chinese started immigrating to the States. What was pushing them out of China and that would, what was pulling them here? And I guess financial reasons definitely played into this. Yeah, yeah. This, this region of southern China had always had a lot of out-migration for work, mostly throughout Southeast Asia going to Malaysia, Indonesia for work and things like that. But in the 19th century, that out-migration intensified. And it intensified for exactly the reasons you just said, the push factors and the pull factors. The pull factors on this side of things was definitely the gold rush in 1848-1849. So they came to California and then followed the precious metal strikes as they happened. First in California, and then it became difficult for Chinese miners to make a living there. But then in Colorado, Nevada, Idaho, and in the 1860s up here into Montana, Sometimes they were working in the placer mines of those areas. A lot of times they provided services, laundry, restaurant work, gardening for fresh vegetables. Oftentimes the Chinese in the American West were pushed out of the most lucrative occupations and into these niche occupations that were important for the functioning of mining camps, but maybe not the highest earning possibilities. So that was definitely a pull in the 1840s. In the 1860s with the Transcontinental Railroad, that was absolutely a pull as well. So the, the American West is resource rich and labor poor. They're looking for workers to build this Transcontinental Railroad, and they welcomed in Chinese workers. In 1868, the Burlingame Treaty guaranteed most favored nation status and protection of Chinese migrants, welcoming Chinese workers in to build this railroad, which they did at great you know, peril to themselves. So they were welcomed in at that point. Once the railroads were complete, they were they began to be excluded. Okay. So pull factors of economic opportunities, absolutely. Back in southern China, the push factors were many. So in the 19th century, China was not doing well with the, the defeats in the Opium Wars and, and some incursions by the Japanese. China was not able to really stand up for itself and protect its citizens at home, let alone abroad. In Taishan County specifically, there were a number of earthquakes, floods, famines, epidemics, civil wars. There was the Taiping Rebellion, which happened from 1850 to 1864, and just huge loss of life. So things were very difficult in Taishan County and in southern China specific, you know, generally. And then that pull of opportunities in Gold Mountain is what created the back and forth. And so Taishan County is kind of where all the uh, Chinese came from that settled in in Montana. Most, yeah, definitely most. most. Okay, yeah. okay, all right. So early on, even before the later uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, there was discrimination against the Chinese. Can you talk about the 1866 anti-Chinese laundry boycott of Chinese businesses that forced them from the region or attempted to? Yeah, so the Chinese were here early in the 1860s with the gold strikes in Grasshopper Creek and Alder Gulch and Virginia City and things like that. But that it became difficult, as I just mentioned, for them to continue to make a living. There was a lot of animosity. So they tended to go into laundry work a lot. It took very little capital to start up a laundry. just took some hard work. You didn't need advanced English language abilities even to wash people's clothes and to enter into agreements to do that. And there were very few women out here on the American, the frontier. So they often, uh, the Chinese often took on more feminized roles in this male-dominated society. And so in Helena in 1866, one of the main ways to get your clothes washed was to go to a Chinese laundry. However, some anti-Chinese elements didn't like that. And this was going to be a recurring theme throughout the Chinese experience in Montana, is to try and boycott them, to take away their economic earning pop opportunities, and force them from the region. Happens here in Helena in 1866. It happens throughout Montana in 1885. 1885 was a particularly bad year. Uh, boycotts in Deer Lodge, Dillon, Nyhart, Anaconda, Butte, on the heels of the Rock Springs Massacre down in Wyoming. So it was a tense, tense time for the Chinese in the American West. Back to that 1866 boycott, forces tried to force the Chinese in Helena out, and the Chinese were as, as much as 20% of Helena's population at that time period. And so they tried to make it so that non-Chinese people would not frequent Chinese laundries. I assert that this is the first moment of Chinese voice that we have in the record when the Chinese took out an ad in the local newspaper to try and advocate for their position in Helena and Montana society. And they write, we have at all times been willing to abide by all the laws of the United States 
and are now willing to deport ourselves as good, law-abiding citizens of Montana Territory and ask but that protection that the liberal and good government of this country permits us to enjoy. We pay all our taxes and assessments and only ask that the good people of Montana may let us earn an honest living by the sweat of our brow. Mm-hmm. So they're pleading for their place in society, saying, we, we need this work, we will do good work, we'll be good citizens, they say. They mean that in a general sense, because in a very specific sense, Chinese could not become American citizens until 1943. So they're talking about being upstanding members of society, not necessarily... Uh, formal citizens mm-hmm. but they yeah. advocated for that position they did keep their laundry i love mm-hmm. that that quote because i think it's the first moment of chinese voice we see also using the structures of society to try and advocate for their their rights yeah. their ability to just be part of a community and that's so so early on yeah. you know that was what surprised me about that 1866 years that it was so early and they were they already had a voice and they were already using their voice at that time. I think those gentlemen who wrote that article probably had been through similar boycott attempts mm-hmm. and possible violence in California, yeah. possibly in Idaho. You know, they'd seen the West. They'd been pushed out probably. But they also places. knew what America was about, mm-hmm. what America said it was about, and said, we, we want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. We'll follow your rules. Let us work. We'll work hard. Yeah, right, right. So, Mark, we hear a lot about Chinese men. Um, because there weren't a lot of Chinese women here. There weren't in the West and in Montana at that point in time. There weren't a lot of women in general in in the territory yet. Um, but I wanted you you do talk about Chinese women in this book, and you talk quite a lot about Chinese women. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that and um, these the the Chinese women's experiences in general. What were, what was their lives like on a daily basis, the women, the Chinese women who did manage to come here? And why why did they come here? And then what was their lives like? And, um, you know, kind of in those early days in that 19th century and, and later in the 20th century, sure, sure. How, how things changed for those Chinese women. There always is a gender imbalance in the West at this time period, but for the Chinese it was especially pronounced. The stats that I that I mind tell us that in 1870 there was 14 Chinese men for every one Chinese woman in Montana. It only widened in 1880. It was 20 to one. By wow. 1900 there was 40 Chinese men for every one Chinese woman in Montana. What was the last year you said? I'm um, sorry, 1900. 1900. 1900. Wow. 40 Chinese wow. men for every one Chinese woman. Mm-hmm. And and. Sometimes people will say that's because the sending culture, Chinese culture, did not want Chinese women to go out for work. There's some truth to that. But when we compare Chinese migration in the 19th century to other areas, there's far closer of a gender balance. Mm. For instance, in, in uh, Southeast Asia and Australia and places like that. And so there's something else was at work. And yeah. what was at work was American laws designed to prohibit Chinese women from coming in. And specifically because they didn't want Chinese families to take root here. Mm. I mean, it's, it's stated by the politicians making these laws, specifically the 1875 Page Act. It was really on its surface to try and prevent prostitutes from coming in to, to apply their trade in, in the American West. And we do know that a lot of Chinese women did work as prostitutes. But before the 1875 Page Act, a lot of the Chinese women who came in were the wives of workers who were coming over to be with their family, right? Uh, The 1875 Page Act treated any Chinese woman trying to get in as if she were a prostitute. Mm. And so the the numbers of Chinese women who were allowed in shrunk dramatically, thus widening that gender gap. Merchants were able to bring wives in, and uh, there there was a trickle of Chinese women who came in during that time period. So in Helena and Butte and Bozeman, some wealthy merchants were able to either arrange a marriage and then meet their wife when she got over to this side of the Pacific, or to go back and find a bride and bring her back. With that, uh, with those marriages, then a, a, a generation of Chinese born here in the United States who were immediately citizens began to take root. So some Chinese-American families did emerge, but not many. Mm-hmm. And so by the 1890s into the turn of the century, there were a few Chinese families taking root in Helena, in Butte, but it was not easy. Mm-hmm. It was not easy. And even those women, uh, those children born on American soil, were still treated by, you know, for all intents and purposes, as if they were forever foreign. Mm. Their ethnicity was seen first before their citizenship status. So their life was was difficult as well. Right. 
So what was life like for a Chinese woman coming over in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s? We have some good excerpts from Butte where there were uh, the largest number of Chinese women. And because of the assumptions of non-Chinese and Chinese society that any Chinese woman here must be a prostitute, it was they were a pretty locked down group. They were not allowed to be out on the streets and be seen. Family women, they were called, were not allowed to be out in society, except for a few times of the year, Lunar New Year and some different festivals when they would get dressed in their finest and go visit other Chinese families. But even then, it was pretty locked down. They'd be in closed carriages as they went on their visits. And so it was a pretty restricted life. That did change in about 1912 when the Chinese Revolution happened and the old imperial system went away for the new Republic of China. Their lives did open up here in in Montana. They Mm. were able to go out about society more freely. Because things changed in China, they changed here. Yeah, yeah. they were very aware of politics. Very aware of, and I assert in the book, very um, connected with and at times influencing Chinese politics Mm. on the other side of the Pacific. Wow. How did they learn what was happening um, in China? A lot of times those letters back and forth would yeah. report political events. Okay. Yeah. And then, as I talk about in Chapter 4, there were a couple of exiled Chinese reformers who couldn't go back to China but were very well connected with Chinese politics and actually found a lot of support here in Montana's Chinese communities. So they would have absolutely known the, the latest current events on Chinese politics. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. It's such a close connection. It's a lot you know, closer than we think. it's an ocean it, away, yeah, but yeah. it's so close. You know, and you think so... with modern technologies, you know, that must be how we, we are so connected. I don't want to pretend they were as connected as, you know, an iPhone lets us be now, mm-hmm. but they were surprisingly connected, surprisingly mobile, uh, tr- truly transnational. Yeah, completely. Well, let's take a quick station break. So you, you're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and today Steve Durbin on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with author and historian Mark Johnson about his brand new book, The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky, A History of the Chinese Experience in Montana. Mark, in your book, you talk about a few notable Chinese women with connections to Montana. One of those was Ahi Yong. Can you tell us about her fascinating story? Yeah, and I was very, very pleased that I had enough material for an entire chapter on the issues relating to Chinese women for the book. But also I try to weave gender throughout every chapter. So I do try to to write that wrong of them being written out of the historic record as much as possible. And there's a couple of fascinating stories of Montana's Chinese women that are just, uh, some of them are just filled with high drama and intrigue and murder and revenge and kidnapping and things like that. But the story of Ahi Young is, I think, to our recent point, very modern. Mm-hmm. So Ahi Young was born in Hawaii, territory of Hawaii in 1903. With that came American citizenship, but she's definitely of Chinese ethnicity. Very bright young woman. She majored in education and also theater, and so she wanted to further both of those careers. So she got accepted into a a master's program at Columbia University in New York. It was difficult, though, for her to get into America proper from Hawaii because of her Chinese ethnicity. Hmm. She was finally let in in this qualified kind of status, goes to Columbia and excels, one of only 50 women in American higher education, Chinese women of Chinese ethnicity in American higher education at the time. As she's studying at Columbia to earn her education, her master's in education, she's also acting on Broadway. And she That's gains, phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's a multitasker, right? Yes, yes. So she gains a lot of acclaim and, 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 you know, is rubbing elbows with some pretty interesting people. This is the early 30s. You know, Broadway yeah. and Hollywood is kind yeah. of taken off. And so she meets a gentleman named R.A. Brett, who's from Montana and is a mining engineer and a financier. And she actually goes in with R.A. Brett to try and help secure Chinese finances to restart gold mining in Montana in the 1930s. So this woman from Hawaii who studied in New York is traveling across the nation, visits Montana and tries to be this Chinese female entrepreneur, Chinese American female entrepreneur to restart uh, gold mining. So she, she does it and she's, it's proclaimed that she's the only Chinese mining engineer in the world. I think that overstates her credentials a little bit, but she was studying very hard. It said since her arrival in Butte four months ago, and this is in the early 30s, she has acquired an intense enthusiasm for mining prospects there. She intends to devote her life to mining engineering and is at present studying under R.A. Brett, president of the Winnetka Mine. 
She went on to talk about this extensively, and she said, Chinese once mined in the plasters of Alder Gulch, and it's altogether fitting that one of the race should aid in bringing a renaissance to the famous camp. I feel that mining engineering is not only a natural but worthy ambition for a Chinese girl. Only I shall have to live to be a good miner to live up to the traditions of the race. And so she's this fascinating, yeah. connected, motivated person. She multitasked as well, though. She kept her uh, acting career going, and that actually took off more than gold mining in Montana. <laughs> she goes on to appear alongside uh, Greta Garbo, Mae West, Clark Gable, Jean Harlow, Gary Cooper. She was in The Good Earth, Pearl Buck's novel that was turned into a film. So she had an amazing acting career, but had this brief moment in Montana where she tried to restart mining with the knowledge of the history of her people in that role. She goes on later to do this one-woman play that she performed in Billings several times uh, where it was called Out from the Inner Apartment. And she said, Chinese women are quite as modern as American women. They have representatives in almost every profession. And this play depicted the changing status of the Chinese woman during the last 25 years. So this motivated, capable, intelligent, bright, connected person had this interesting little interlude in Montana. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I love her story. And I think it's so interesting that she was going into mining and acting. So can you see some... Let me just jump in there. Yeah, go ahead. Her last thing, her last credit on IMDb is a Magnum PI. Oh my gosh, you're (laughs) kidding. (laughs) When did she... When did she pass? She is she? in the 1980s. Wow. Yeah. So That's that, that just takes it up to the present. I mean, our, oh, I'm our childhood present. I'm going to YouTube that Magnum you know. PI and see yeah, if I can yeah. see her. So just this, just spanned so many different eras. And with that knowledge of her, of people like her working in the plaster mines of Alder Gulch in the yeah. 1860s. That's what brought her to it. Yeah. So do you think there's clips of her in those films with Mae West? Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm going to find one of those. That's that's fascinating. A lot, a lot of people know the Anna Mae West story. Uh, Anna yeah. Mae Wong, I'm sorry. Anna Mae Wong. Um, and she she's kind of in that same Hollywood okay. those circles and trying to... What was her stage name again? Sue Young. S-O-O-Y-O-N-G. Y-O-N-G. Okay. All right. Good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search her up. <laughs> Try to find that. So I want to move on and, and talk a little bit more broadly about the Chinese in Montana. And you have a great diagram in your book that represents where the Chinese lived throughout Montana. And so people will have to buy the book to see the diagram. Um, but it's, it's just wonderful. And, you know, every time I talk to people about the Chinese community in Bozeman or the Chinese community somewhere else in Montana, people are, are, are still surprised that there were Chinese communities in Montana. And so this diagram really shows where those people were living. And uh, you, you depict locations in Montana where 10 or more Chinese residents lived from 1870 to 1930. So you have a wide span there as well. So can you describe this visual and give us examples of where the Chinese communities formed in Montana and why those, why those communities formed in these particular places? I'm, I'm really glad you like the map. I, you I know, love I it. Yeah, struggling with this of how to represent where the Chinese were in Montana And then the question becomes, well, when are you talking about? Because the Chinese in Helena were at their height in 1870. And so I wanted to try and create a map that would not only show us where they were located, but when they were at their height and what the population was when it was at its height. So I had this cartographer, Erin Greb, work with me on this. And I think she did a great job to try and show that. And so I mined the census records from 1870, 1880, 1900, 1910, and 20 didn't show much. And then 1930... You'll notice I missed a, a, a date there, 1890. And Montana's Chinese population was at its height in 1890 with mm, over 2,500 yeah. Chinese Montanans. But we don't have the specific tables for the 1890 census as they were destroyed in fire in the 1920s. And so that that's a key loss. But I also got creative in trying to look at any other moment where the Chinese population was assessed. For instance, there was an 1891 health officer report in Butte that helped me peg what the Chinese population in Butte was around that time when it would have been at its height. And the health officer indicated there was about 841 Chinese in Butte at that time. Wow. I think each of these numbers is probably an undercounting, mm-hmm. a slight undercounting, just yeah. knowing kind of the difficulty of census enumerators in dealing with Chinese populations and some Chinese in Montana possibly illicitly and wanting to avoid government agents. So I think each community is probably a slight undercounting. But to try and overlay this and give one image that showed when 
the population in each of those areas was at its height was a struggle, but I think we did it well. So Billings was at its height in 1984, Bozeman in 1905 at 73. Now that 1905 number is kind of interesting because it shouldn't be a formal year of a census. There was a, a document check, a roust, that I talked about in our first conversation yeah. where government agents went to every Chinese community in Montana and checked for paperwork that the Chinese were required to have uh, obtained 11 years earlier and still have on their persons. That's also a moment when Chinese Montana's Chinese population declined significantly because of this document check, arrests and deportations happened causing about 30% of Montana's Chinese population to be arrested and deported. After 1905. Yeah, wow. yeah so the decline was, was precipitous after that. Okay. But like I mentioned, Helena at 648 in 1870, Butte in 1891 at about 841. I think Butte's population was about 1,000 at that time okay. you know, from a couple yeah. of other. But each of these moments, I, I try to substantiate as much as possible what its hot position at, was at its height. So you see some on the high line of Haver and Chinook that was definitely in dealing with the railroad construction. You see some over in western Montana and Trout Creek and Belknap and Thompson Falls that follow the route of what we know was the railroad. Other places are what we know are mining strikes, you know, Virginia City, Alder Gulch, uh, Dillon, Boulder, Walkerville, places like that. But they are very highly concentrated in the west. Yes. So there's more Chinese communities in the West than the, I mean, in the, I'm sorry, in the, yes, in the West, in the West. than the East. Yeah. So can you explain that? Well, if you'll notice right in the middle of pages six and seven, there is a big gap from my hometown of Great Falls, Montana. Yes. And it does not make the map. Oh. I cut it off at 10. Uh, okay. So Chinese community is 10 or higher. Even if I'd gone down to one, Great Falls wouldn't have made the map. Really? Great oh, Falls, from its, right. from its founding yes. in the 1880s, it was a planned city. Most Amer most Montana cities emerged organically along a, a precious metal strike or foresting or something like that. Great Falls was more of a planned city. And unfortunately for this story, some of the Great Falls founding fathers planned the city to exclude Chinese. So there right. were no Chinese for most for, for most intents and purposes. No Chinese in Great Falls from the 1880s up through the early 1940s. So that's one reason in central Montana, and you'll notice in Fort Benton, there was about 40 Chinese uh, around 1900. So there was a Chinese population in central Montana, northern Montana. As we move out east, simply put, the, the sparseness of the entire population is quite sparse. Uh, so the Chinese community, there would have been small pockets of Chinese in Glendive, in you know uh, Fort Keogh, places like that in eastern Montana, but not many. They generally served as cooks, laundry workers, and restaurant workers in very small numbers out there. Okay. And you do see them along the railroad lines. Yeah. So that's probably a result of the railroad yeah. to a certain degree, but probably um, we're coming over from mining work as well and then and then establishing those laundries and restaurants. And, you know, because of this, this map tries to encapsulate multiple dates, mm -hmm. you might be right. safe in assuming that somebody who was in Helena in 1870 might have appeared in Billings in 1905. Right. You know, they stayed yeah. in the state pretty to a pretty surprising degree. So this is not a static map. This mm -hmm. population was quite mobile, quite interconnected in the state. And so it doesn't capture that movement necessarily, but I think it captures that time at their height and where they were and when they were at their, at their largest numbers. Yeah, yeah. Mark, I hear you're involved in a project funded by the Montana History Foundation in partnership with the Maiwa Museum to translate Chinese headstones in cemeteries located in Helena, Bozeman, Billings, and Butte. You'll identify the individuals commemorated, research their lives and experiences uh, while they lived in Montana, and additionally, a team will use the translations to identify home villages for Chinese Montanans and connect with descendants and extended families. This sounds like a great project. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, I'm just so pleased to partner with the Montana History Foundation. They've been so generous in extending this this grant opportunity. And through then the, the organization of the Maywa Society in Butte, which is key in telling the Chinese history of the, the region. So we're partnering with Montana History Foundation that does a lot of work in cemeteries in the state. And what we're going to do here, there's four... There's many Chinese cemeteries across the state, but for cultural reasons, they didn't want their bones to reside outside of China in perpetuity. And so after about five to seven years, their bones would have been exhumed and returned for reburial in southern China. 
So most of the Chinese cemeteries across the state are lost and probably don't have many remains uh, left. For instance, we know there was a Chinese cemetery in Missoula. It's now under a residential neighborhood in the Rattlesnake District of, of that mm-hmm. city. Yeah. But there are four places in Montana, at least four, that have stone headstones that have Chinese writing on them. Butte is definitely the largest in Mount Moriah Cemetery. We were just down there on Saturday to do what's called the Qingming Festival or Tomb Sweeping Day. Bozeman, Sunset Hill Cemetery in Bozeman has about six or eight Chinese headstones. Mountain View Cemetery in Billings has about six or eight. And then Forestvale Cemetery in Helena has about six or eight Chinese headstones. So what the plan is, is again, these are written in traditional script. So you need somebody who can read that older version of the, the writing. But then the difficulty is not only in translating that, but in verbalizing that in the dialect that would have been spoken by the individuals commemorated on those stones. And that dialect is Taishanese. We've talked about that county of Taishan. It's a very specific dialect. It's not, a lot of times people will say, well, it's Cantonese. It's close, but it's different. So we need to get as close as possible to how the Chinese commemorated on those headstones would have verbalized their own name. And just to translate the characters into spoken Mandarin will not get us there. So we need a, someone who reads traditional script and can verbalize it in a Toisanhua or Taishanese so that we can understand how they verbalize their name and maybe then find that, that individual in census records, in newspapers, in immigration, in court records to try and build an understanding of what that person's life was like. On each of those headstones is not only when they passed, their, their name, given name and family name, but the village from which they came in southern China. Oh, that's good. So that yeah. hopefully we can connect... We've got somebody on the grant who's an expert in, in Taishan's geography and village life, connect back to those villages and maybe access genealogy books from those families to build this picture of the family and this one or more person who came from Taishan to Montana, what they know of that person, what we can fill in of that person to just build a global understanding of Chinese Montanans and their mm-hmm. connection back to the village. I love that so much. I can't wait because yeah. you're going to do that here in Bozeman. Yeah. So I can't wait for that project and to start. The person who's helping us with that is a linguist out of the University of San Francisco named Dr. Genevieve Leong. And so she'll do the traditional writing, okay. translating into spoken Taishanese. And then Peter Lau out of uh, New York is our geographic expert. He'll be working with teams on the ground in southern China to try and make those connections and uh, just build wow. that, that story. And I'll be working in the, in the archives here of when we identify those individuals in the non-Chinese record to try and build a full story of their life. Oh, how great. Yeah. So maybe we'll even find out if those remains made it back to the family yeah. and they ha- they know where those remains are. Yeah, it'd be great to see where here. they're buried in their second burial yeah. back there. Yeah. A lot of times people talk about the principles of feng shui in a Taoist sense of wind and water and harmony in the, in the universe. And they want to see that in Chinese cemeteries. I don't see that here on this side of things, that they were buried with feng shui, with a mountain in the back and two hills on the sides that went down towards water with kind of geo, geomancy kind of written into how they were buried. I think that would have been done in their second burial back mm. in the village back home. Yeah. So if their remains were successfully returned, and we know many of them were, then descendants honor the ancestors still to this day, wow. making, making things come full circle. Wow, that would be amazing. Yeah. Do you have any hopes that um, by making these connections back to their home, you might be able to recover some letters that were written from Montana? Do you, do you think that's possible, or is that too much of a stretch? I, I, my fingers are crossed. I, I don't want to get my hopes up. I think at, with just knowing Chinese history of the 20th century, at certain times during the communist rule, it would have been dangerous to have mm-hmm. foreign connections. And so I don't know if many letters from America would have been kept. It's possible. I think what we will probably be more likely to encounter is oral tradition of what that person experienced, why they went, if they came back, who is still connected in a linear sense, lineage sense to that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Have you started this project? Has this started or is it? I photographed uh, Billings, Bozeman, and Helena and sent them to Dr. Leung. I have to photograph Butte. And then she's actively working on the translations now, and I'm, I'm waiting. We also will host a teacher institute oh, for wonderful. Montana teachers, for 20 Montana teachers, yeah. to try and help them integrate this Chinese history into their Montana classrooms. Great. That will be held in May of 23 okay. in Butte. Nice. 
in coordination with Tomb Sweeping Festival next oh, spring. Oh, beautiful. So come Wonderful. down to Butte, Montana yeah. teachers, middle school, high school, elementary teachers, come down, learn about the Chinese history of Montana, learn about the cemetery project, study in Butte, and take this back into your classrooms. The Montana History Foundation is also providing a copy of the book to each Good. of those participants. So Great. it's a, it's a, a well funded process and uh, we're very happy to have the partnership good good i'm so glad i'm so glad to hear that's happening it's, if it's teachers, wonderful yeah if teachers would like to reach out go to bigskychinese.com and my contact page please reach out yeah. i think there's a 50 dollars stipend for teachers to take part plus oh, the book plus meals provided and just a, an exciting way to learn about our state's diverse past um secondary or primary teachers included everybody k through 12 k through 12 yep. awesome okay wonderful well, good. Well, that sounds like such a, an amazing um, project, and we're excited to hear what you find out about the Bozeman residents who are buried there as well. You know, the Bozeman um, Chinese and Japanese, I think, are there. So, But, of course, you'll just be focusing on the Chinese. Is yep. that correct? Yeah. So, um, Mark, you're working, now that you've finished this book, <laughs> you're working on new projects, the cemetery being one of them, but you have, I'm hearing, I haven't talked to you about this yet, but I'm hearing that you're now working on a project that has to do with Chinese gardens. Is that true? And if it so, is. can you tell us about this? It is. I just have to pause, Crystal. You sound like my mother-in-law. Of Mark, what's next? What, what's your next project? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing now? The book's... Right. I, I kid. She actually, <laughs> Lucille O'Leary, uh, was a key part of this story from the beginning. She yeah. found... Speaking of cemeteries, a tombstone that started this whole project, and I detail that story in chapter one. Yeah. So I joke about the mother-in-law connection. Yeah, yeah and so, you told that story in yeah. the first podcast we did with you. So if folks want to hear that great. It's a great story. The Bitzer so Achao go back story, to that one. murder, yeah. mystery, oh intrigue, gosh. rewards, dead or alive. It's a story of the old West that has a definite Chinese connection. Yeah. So yeah, as I as I did this work, I kept seeing references to Chinese gardens. And, you know, having lived in China, there are very well-manicured Chinese gardens that are used for that principle of feng shui and relaxation and harmony. The Chinese gardens we're talking about in the American West were different. Mm. These were producing fresh vegetables to feed the mining camps or the logging camps or whatever it might be. But most cities in America, I'm sorry, in Montana had a Chinese garden. Definitely Helena, Butte, Billings, Bozeman, and smaller towns. Boulder, I've got a, a map that indicates where a Chinese garden was there. And the Chinese workers, this was probably closer to what they had done back home before mm -hmm. coming to, to America. Mm -hmm. They hadn't really mined gold back home. Yeah. They hadn't really built railroads back home. They had been involved in agriculture back home. Okay. So I think this was probably, and they didn't, mine, they didn't do laundry, laundry work or no laundry. restaurant work necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So this was probably closer to their true you know, occupational experience. And so in these towns, you know, Montana is such a northern climate, it's difficult to get things to grow. I'm thinking about when we're going to plant our tomatoes coming up soon, and yeah. by Friday it's supposed to freeze. So, know. you know, we've got all snow. these things on our yeah. mind. Yeah, freeze uh, and snow. But they used innovations in fertilizer, innovations in greenhouse technology, innovations in irrigation to make Montana's terrain and climate produce vegetables that really surprised non-Chinese Montanans. Wow. And they brought these to market in what's called truck gardening or peddling. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they were walking down the streets and, and peddling. Sometimes they'd have customers that they would visit on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But bringing things to freshness and to market at times of the year that surprise non-Chinese folks in this region. Wow. Well, we have a story here in Bozeman of a, a man who had a Chinese garden along the creek and he would sell celery. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's not something you think of as a Montana yeah. vegetable. <laughs> so I, I, I've always wondered, well, how is he growing celery? <laughs> and, and I've got but, some sources that talk about when, when things are going to be ripe and how much they're going to charge. Wow. I've also got some maps that show where these Chinese gardens were. Sometimes they happen to be just any square, any, you know, spare square of land in Chinatown in the urban area. That was the case in Helena. But then as the cities developed, oftentimes the Chinese gardens moved to the edge. That was the case in Butte and then the northern Helena Valley. And sadly, this made the Chinese at those gardens susceptible to violence mm, as well. Yeah. They tended to be on the edge of society geographically and also, you know, legal protection-wise. And they did quite well in their earnings as Chinese gardeners. So oftentimes I'm seeing reports of rowdies raiding Chinese mm -hmm. gardens in Butte and in Helena, mm -hmm. um, inflicting some violence against the Chinese gardeners, probably because they were so far away from the city center 
and prying right. eyes of legal forces, and because they knew that there'd be money there because of the success they of were those doing Chinese well. gardeners. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of stories of um, Chinese artifacts coming out from um, some of these probably um, places where um, Chinese were gardening along the creek, along yeah. Bozeman Creek. Um, on the south side of town and the north side of town, um, lots of people talk about different Chinese artifacts coming out of the ground and and uh, finding different implements. So I always imagine that the Chinese gardens were along Bozeman Creek on both sides. I think you're probably right in terms of irrigation. Yeah. And they would often divert the stream and use the water and in interesting ways. You know, it's so dry here, they needed to get creative. Yeah. And we've got accounts of people, of non-Chinese People who are familiar with gardening really being impressed with the irrigation system of the Chinese gardeners in this region. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that sounds like a, another great project. Is that going to be a book? That's probably or an article. Okay. Yeah, maybe Montana, the magazine of Western history yeah. or something like that. Oh, yeah. that'll be really yeah. important. Um, so you mentioned your website before, um, and I want you to mention it again. It, it It's, or I'll mention it, it's bigskychinese.com. And you have some amazing resources on this website. You have curriculum for students. You have um, information on your upcoming events. You have information on your cemetery project, which I'm sure you'll keep updating. So I encourage everyone to check out this website and learn more about the Chinese in Montana. So that's BigSkyChinese.com. So maybe, Mark, just talk a little bit about your website and uh, what you hope to have on that in the future. Sure. First of all, if you go to BigSkyChinese.com right now, there's a 40% off coupon code. That's important. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Generously offered through the University of Nebraska, the press that published the book. So that that brings, you know, academic books tend to be quite a high sticker price. But this cuts that almost in half. I was a math major for a little while. I know that's a pretty good deal, right? Uh, So please visit that and and use that to, to get the book and read it and share it. On this website, I've got, again, the, the cemetery projects. So you can see some of those headstones, and you'll, you'll see the mapping that we attempt to do and the stories we attempt to tell. Uh, what I'm hoping to develop most is that, that curriculum that you mentioned. I've got a team of eight teachers across the states, and actually one in China, working on lesson plans based somewhat in the book, but also just in the Chinese experience in Montana and the broader American West for middle school and high school teachers. So there's one teacher who's working on a lesson plan on Chinese cuisine, you know, chop suey and noodle parlors and things nice. like that, how that developed, why that developed, what purpose it served. Uh, one teacher's working on the issue of gender in Chinese communities. One teacher's working on resistance in Chinese communities and how they stood up for their rights in an often hostile environment. Uh, one is working on the push-pull factors in a general sense, like we talked about, understanding where they came from and why and what drew them here to this part of the world. And as we expand the scope, oftentimes the story of the Chinese in the West stops in the ni- you know, 1900, 1910 yeah, maybe. Yeah. One teacher is working on uh, Chapter 8 in the book, which is about the Cold War. And so Cold War tensions, once the Chinese Exclusion Act ended in 1943, it wasn't as if the door was flung wide open because the Cold War began and, you know, the communist China meant that many Chinese trying to get to America were suspected of having communist sympathies and possibly being infiltrators. And so that's what Chapter 8 deals with is these letters back and forth from these brothers trying to reunite in Montana and so a teacher's working on a Cold War-based lesson plan that I think is a pretty exciting way to extend the, the normal chronology of this topic. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, um, the gentleman whose letters you found, did he ever get back home? We don't know. He disappears mm-hmm. off the record. Um, these letters were saved through the Maywa Society in Butte in the 1980s, but they did a great job and they did a noble thing to save them. In the process of Butte's Chinatown shrinking, Oftentimes when Chinese families would leave, they would leave a lot of stuff behind. That stuff would get moved into whatever building was available, and that was the Meiwa Noodle Parlor in the 1980s. Um, Both of the collections of documents that we translated were saved through being housed at the Meiwa building before it was a museum. And in the 80s, you know, it was difficult in Butte, and there was a lot of vandalism, a lot of arson. The building was leaking, and so it was decided that these documents needed to be preserved. In that process, much of their provenance has been lost. Many of the mm-hmm. envelopes have been lost. And so we don't really know what happens to that first gentleman, the, the guy who was a laundry yeah. worker in the 1880s and 1920s. The second set of documents that deal with the Cold War period, we do know what happened to that gentleman. Okay. He was in Butte from the 1930s through the 1950s. 
desperately trying to get his brother to join him out of war-torn southern China. 250 letters talk about this process back and forth. He's, he's pleading the government, the American government, to let his brother in. His brother jumps through every hoop, blood tests, fingerprinting, testimony, affidavits. And every time he does what the government asked of him, then by the time he's done it, the rules have changed. Mm. He's stu- th- this, so this correspondence specifically relating to get his brother out of war-torn southern China starts in 1949, continues through 1958. Finally, the brother who's in Butte decides he needs to move to Seattle to be closer to consular offices oh, to try yeah. and facilitate his brother's entry to the States. That brother does never does make it out of, of China and to oh. reunite with his brother in America. Mm-hmm. But as that brother left Butte, he left these letters behind, okay. made a life in Seattle. We now have these letters and are able to tell that story. He yes. passed away just again to bring this story to the present. The brother who got into Butte at 14 years old in 1933 desperately tries to get his brother to join him. That brother dies in November of 2000. Oh, my gosh. This is a wow. present story. It is. This is an American story. Yeah. This is a story of families. This is a story of movement, of hopes, dreams, of, of working hard and trying to make a life. And sometimes obstacles are put in the in their way that uh, they could overcome. And sometimes those obstacles were insurmountable. Right, right. And that family that you were just talking about, their ties go back in America for quite a while. They yeah. had they had grandfathers who were here, so they had they had um, placement in America, yeah. and so that was why they could come and, and stay. And but then things got insurmountable. Yeah, the grandfather um, was born in San Francisco in 1878, thus an American citizen. Yeah, and through a, a concept called derivative citizenship. His citizenship was passed down to his son and his his grandsons. So when Wing Hong Hum, the subject of Chapter 8, comes into America at 1933 at 14 years old, looking like just a little middle school kid, um, he comes in as a citizen, even though he is detained for six weeks in Seattle to have his status and his... uh, what he claims to be true, checked against paperwork that had been building for 100 years. Wow. This is Wing Hong Hong in Oh, that's a great photo. Yeah, he just looks like a young kid. Right. Just a young kid. He is a young kid. And his father I mean, had passed gosh. away, and he had obligations to family members. He came to wow. he came to Butte, worked in several laundries. Wow. And then, actually, my assertion is he was the first Chinese miner, Chinese-American miner, in Butte for 60 years. Wow. Chinese have been prohibited from the, working in the underground mines in Butte. Yeah. And he gets a job at the Mountain Con Mine in 1941. Wow. Thus breaking that color line. Man. He was an American citizen, as we yeah. just talked about. Yeah. But I think it was more about um, people of Chinese ethnicity were barred from those mines. Mm-hmm. So he gets a job in 1941, possibly, I think, due to wartime production, production increasing, manpower decreasing with the war that uh, allowed for him to work in the, in the mines. Wow. He used to became a union member, became, you know, had we've got pictures of him out hunting and fishing with white friends, became fully Montanan, mm-hmm. though his brother was never given the opportunity to do that. Right. So you really do bring this book to present. You know, you do bring it right up to the present, which I think is really important. And maybe we could just um, start to wrap up on that note. And, and why is this book important today? I think it goes back, you know, you talk about bringing it to the present. I'm glad that you see that and and appreciate that. To go back to the beginning, though, the first time the Chinese were attempted to be counted in Montana was in 1870. And I I tell this story every time I talk about this. The territorial census of Montana recognized there was 10, maybe 15 percent of the territorial population that was Chinese. And yet the territorial records that should give us information about those individuals obscure their, their identity. The, t- the census lists them as, quote, China man, China woman, China boy, stripping them of their identity, their family connections, their personhood. And I hope through this project, through the cemetery project, through the letter translations, through looking at their advocacy, their agency, their motivated pursuit of their goals as individuals and as, as community members, we can restore their identity and see them as Montanans, as Chinese, as Chinese Montanans who had great hopes and dreams got a lot done in an often hostile environment, helped build this region through all the difficult times. Well, thank you so much for writing this book, Mark. It's phenomenal. Yes, there's much more we would love to discuss with you, but sadly, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for talking to us today. The Middle Kingdom Under the Big Sky is an important read. We encourage everyone out there to find a copy. 
And do check out Mark's website, BigSkyChinese.com, for information supplementing the book. Thank you again, Mark. Thank you both. I, I always enjoy partnering with the Extreme History Project and the Dirt on the Past. You do great work. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks to all you listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, which we know you do, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we love those five-star reviews. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt dirt on on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, myself, Steve Durbin. Thanks, nice also. Job, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, We bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive.